All right, let me pray. We're going to jump into God's Word. Father, thank you uh, just for your goodness, your faithfulness. Um, thank you for what you're doing with Jeremiah and his family and how you seem to just be working miracles, and we're so grateful. Most of all, God, we just continue to pray that this would be an, uh, an activity, an opportunity, Father, for people to come to know you in a deeper, deeper way and even know you for the first time. You would be honored and glorified through all of this, God. And now, God, as we look into your word, Father, may you enlighten our minds. May your spirit just teach us what we need to hear uh, this morning. We ask in Christ's name, amen. I want to ask you, how many of you have ever uh, found yourself uh, presented with an opportunity that you really feel like has been placed in your life that you were really felt like, I need to pursue this? I need to do this. I need to go for this. Maybe it was an, even something as small as an opportunity to uh, speak the gospel into someone's life or an opportunity to embark in a new direction uh, for your life or your career or for your ministry or an opportunity to make a significant lifestyle change or it was to help someone in a specific way, something where you felt like I were presented with this opportunity by God. And I need, to, I need to jump into this. Whatever it might be, you also knew, you also knew that seizing this opportunity would probably require you to trust in God in ways that you probably haven't had to before. Ever had that happen before? I'm, okay, here comes this opportunity. Okay, I know I'm supposed to grasp it, but I know I'm going to have to trust God for this one. There's some things I'm, this is scary. This is big. This is unknown. And I need to go, I need to trust God for this, but I need to seize this opportunity. Well, this happened to my wife and I uh, back in the late 90s. As many of you know, I've shared in different ways. I'd been a, I'd been a youth pastor in Foster City uh, for six years at a church over there and was really starting to kind of feel uh, a little bit restless in my job. I was loving it, but I was just sensing uh, a change was coming. But really, I was also sensing in my heart um, that was really being tugged towards overseas missions. I had known missionaries. Actually, my wife and I, back in the early days of being married, we'd, we'd probably we'd figure we'd like retire on the mission field or something like that. But now that tug was really starting to come uh, really strong. And it was interesting. We went on a family vacation to Idaho or something like that. Thank you. And it's all the same to me. Um, uh, and, and in our talking, we realized we, are, we were both on the same page. Kathy was sensing very much the same thing going on in her heart and in her mind. And after much talking and, and praying and really narrowing down the possibilities, we realized that God was placing an opportunity in our lives to go, specifically to go to Germany to work at this Christian international boarding school that was primarily for kids of missionaries whose parents, the education system was not good enough, typically, especially when it got to the high school ages, to prepare them for university here. So they would send them there. Difficult, difficult for most of them. But they still did it, and they needed people to come and love on their kids during these uh, vital years. Now, at the time, we had four of our own boys, okay? Ages almost two to 11, right? We were just a little busy. Uh, so needless to say, the idea of helping to raise 27 more high school boys, which is what we were going to be tasked with, along with our own children, having to raise really a large amount of financial support, leaving our friends, leaving our family, moving to the other side of the world, really this brought its fair share of anxiety to us. And at first, we, we saw some significant challenges in this happening. Yet we felt strongly that we were being presented 
with this opportunity that God had placed in our lives and that we were supposed to seize it. We were supposed to go after it, and it would require us trusting God in ways that we never had before. I got to tell you, needless to say, we were there for four and a half years. We had to come back for some health reasons of mine. But I can just to say, those four and a half years had a major impact on our family, and it yielded incredible ministry fruit and relational fruit. It was just an amazing time that my wife and I and our kids constantly reflect back to on how we saw God's hand in those years. And since then, I found myself, maybe like even some of you, I'm sure you have, presented with opportunities that I believe that God placed in my life that I was meant to seize upon. Although the truth is, I'm sure I've missed a lot of them. I'm sure I've missed or ignored or said no. I'm sure if you're like me, you've done the same, said that there. So number one on your notes, if you want to follow along, if you want to fill in the blanks, the truth is, and this is what we're going to see in this in today, the truth is learning to truly trust God means seizing opportunities He places in our lives that will require us to trust Him to provide wisdom, courage, strength, and resources we need to move forward. Learning to truly trust God. First part of that means it means seizing. We need to seize that opportunity. And so often, I think a lot of us as Christians, we don't grow in our faith or we get stagnant in our faith because a lot of times we are presented with opportunities that he brings our way, but out of fear, out of whatever it might be, we choose not to seize on them. We choose not to grab onto them. And the truth is we miss out on a lot. The biggest thing we miss out on is growing in our faith and our intimacy with God. So actually, I recently have found myself in another one of these situations. I'm not going to Germany. I'm not going anywhere. Um, But I really found myself with an opportunity that I believe that God has placed in my life. And I believe that I am meant to seize with all my might This opportunity, which I know is going to require me and already has required me to trust in the Lord more than I ever have. And it has to do with our church. It has to do with our church. Now, I'm not going to, I have no specifics to tell you this morning, but I accept the fact that I really feel strongly that God has put on my heart to desire to, and the desire to allow God to shape our church into people who are living on mission for God on a daily basis. We see that we are missionaries right where we are. Every conversation, every chance meeting, everything that we are, we all be on mission on a daily basis. And living out that mission is meant to be, to happen in the context of true community. I mean, I cannot tell you, I have, I don't hear from the Lord like, I don't hear, you know, people say, you know, you hear from the Lord. I got to tell you, there's a few times in my life when I have felt God just like, and this is one of them. And you got to tell you, our elders and we are, and some others, we are in some pretty deep discussions about what this means. How do we as individuals and as a church live on mission for God in the context, though, of true community? How do we do that? More to come later. So, how do I leave you hanging? So, how do we make sure that we're seizing opportunities that God puts in our lives that we know will require us trusting Him? How do we do that? Well, that is precisely what the third chapter of Ruth 
helps us with. If you remember, last week we were introduced to this new and uh, pivotal character. What's his name? Exactly, Boaz. Name your kid Boaz. I'm telling you, strong name, wonderful name. And so we saw that he was this wealthy, influential man, but mostly he, had, he was of noble character, okay? We saw that he, was, he went beyond being generous to this destitute Moabite woman, Ruth, by surprisingly providing her with an abundance of food for both her and her mother-in-law, Naomi, See, it was just crazy how generous he'd been. I encourage you, if you missed that sermon, go back and listen, or just at the very least, go back and read the first couple chapters um, of Ruth. But the big surprise, remember, the big surprise comes when Naomi finds out that Boaz is a close relative of her, her, of her deceased husband. Remember that? He's actually what's considered his family kinsman or a kinsman redeemer, who in this case is an unmarried adult male relative who had the responsibility or the privilege of uh, to take this widow, to take a widow as a bride that she would not remain destitute and in order to preserve their family line. And that's who Boaz was. So here we have these three people, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Through his sovereignty, not, and not by some coincidence or not by some chance has caused their lives to intersect, okay? Has caused their lives together. And we're going to see this morning that they will all be given this chance to seize this incredible opportunity that God has placed in their lives. And really, it's one that has an enormous implications, not only for them, but really for all generations to come, for all generations of mankind, Okay? Who knows what opportunity God has for you? <laughs> it could be a small one that affects little things. It could be things that affect all of mankind. You don't know. That's what's coming, though, for these guys. So let's pick up the story. Chapter, one, chapter 3, verse 1 says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative? with whose young women you were, you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So, I don't know if you noticed here, Naomi sees two possibilities, okay? Two opportunities. Two opportunities that she sees. The first is for Ruth. She sees this opportunity for Ruth, her daughter-in-law, who, remember, who has pledged her undying devotion to her to take care of her the rest of her life. Now, she sees an opportunity for her to be taken care of, to find security, to find rest that would happen, would be attained in marriage, that's where she would find it. But she also sees a second opportunity. She second opportunity brings up, she brings up a Boaz's ability to be their kingsman redeemer. In order, he, someone who can preserve their family line. So Naomi, no, not Naomi, Naomi jumps into action. She goes right for it. She seizes this opportunity by devising this really, actually a rather bold and audacious plan. Okay? Somehow, she knows that Boaz will be winnowing barley that night. 
Those of you who know what winnowing barley is, we don't do that much around here. Winnowing was when you were on like a platform or a hillside and you'd throw the grain up into the air with a large fork and the, and the chaff and the, the lighter chaff would blow away and then heavier kernels of grain would fall down in a nice pile and you, then you would, you would collect it up. So that's what, that's, what, um, that's what he was doing, Okay. So she, was, she, was, she also, interestingly, she suspected that he would be alone. I don't know how she knew that, but she figured that he would be alone there. Perfect circumstances. Perfect circumstances for a productive rendezvous, right? This is, this is, this is great. She's, going, she's got it planned out here. So she tells Ruth, Ruth, go take a bath. Put on perfume and change into your regular clothes. Ruth had probably been wearing clothes of mourning from a widow that had been mourning. So she says, nope, no more of that. It's time to, as it were, put yourself out there. Okay, get it clean up. Okay, here we go. So she tells her to go to the threshing floor, but to kind of remain in stealth mode, okay? Don't let him see you. Don't let him see who you are. And wait till he has, he has had some food, he's had some drink, and he's fallen asleep. In other words, she says, wait until when he is the most contented he could possibly be. Okay? Fat and happy. Okay? He's going to be just chill. Okay? Wait until that time. And after she notices where she, he's lied down to sleep, she's to go over to him and uncover his feet and lie down. That sounds strange, huh? Go uncover. You would think she was supposed to go, hey, Boaz, remember me, Ruth? No. She's supposed to go over and just uncover his feet and lie down there. What Ruth is doing, what this was, is this wasn't anything sexual, but this was a customary, nonverbal means of requesting marriage. A nonverbal way of saying I'm available, okay? But she's told not to say anything, just simply wait and see what he tells her to do. So Ruth agrees to this audacious and, might I add, risky plan. Let's see what happens next in verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Then she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So, after Boaz falls asleep, Ruth heads, just picture this in your mind, she head tiptoes. On over to where Boaz uncovers his feet and lay down, lies down. Then we see Boaz, he wakes up in the middle of the night, probably because what? His feet are cold, you know? He's probably going, what? what's going on? So it says that he, he rolls over, he turns over, and shocked, surprised, oh, there's, a woman, there's a woman there. It's supposed to be barley grain. No, but there's a woman there. He's like, who are you? Yes, who are you? It's probably dark. You can't see. No nightlight. Notice Ruth's reply. I love this. And this is important. This is really important. We actually see Ruth going off script here. She actually goes off script to what Naomi had told her to do and her plan. Remember, Naomi totally said, just simply said, wait. Just wait for him to tell you what to do. But Ruth is determined. She is determined to fully seize this opportunity. She's not going to chance anything. 
So she requests, what does she say? She spread his, your wings. But what really the, what this means is translated is, is translated or spread the cover of a piece of your garment, your cover of your corner of your garment over me. Essentially, she's referring to herself. She's saying, listen, I am available for you to marry. Actually, she's going beyond the nonverbal. She is making a verbal request. Essentially, she's, what she's doing here is asking Boaz to answer his own prayer from last chapter. Remember that? Look at it. I'll put it up there. Ruth chapter 2 says, he said this to, to Ruth. He said, the Lord repay you for you have done, for all you have done, and a full reward be given to you. By the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you take refuge. So she's asking him, basically saying, remember that prayer? Remember that? Time, it's being answered, buddy. Answer your own prayer. Here we go. Here we go. Okay? She's going beyond her instructions because she wants to make sure that not only will she find rest and security that we found in marrying Boaz, but she wants to make sure that Naomi is going to be cared for and provided for as well. You see the heart of Ruth? An amazing woman, amazing woman. And you got to love her boldness and her tenacity. Think about how risky this whole operation was. This whole Navy SEAL operation that Ruth was pulling off here. I mean, think of all that could have gone wrong. I mean, Boaz could have refused her request. How humiliating would that have been? He could have even mocked her. For the, um, you're, you're a Moabite. Remember, the Moabites are our enemies, the sworn enemies of Israel. And he could have said, who are you? To, and, and you're going to ask me, a man? You're going to propose marriage to an Israelite? He could have said it very nicely because we know he was a man of noble character. But a lot of things could have gone wrong that night. Now, look at Boaz's reaction. I love his reaction to Ruth to, and to her request. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Just so you know, guys, there's nothing up, Scott. There's nothing up there, just so you guys know. Um, and, and so, as in the last chapter, Boaz is absolutely blown away by Ruth's devotion, by her loving kindness. He's just, he just can't believe what she's doing. He knows that she could have gone after a younger woman. Women, they say that Boaz was probably pretty old. Some things even said that he might have been as old as 80 years old. It's possible. So he's, abs he's absolutely blown away that she... <laughs> yeah, the older guys are going, ooh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but he's blown away. He knows that she could have gone after anybody. She could have got anybody to be happy and to know because everybody knew her reputation and she could have been happy with anybody out there, but she chose, she chose not to. Any number of men could provide her with security. Yet because she has chosen him, because she has chosen him, because she knows that he being marrying him would greatly benefit Naomi as well, he is flabbergasted. He's absolutely blown away by this. And might I add, Probably a bit turned on. I think that there's a romance budding 
You got you to think that it was, there could have been some romance kind of budding here between these because they were seeing each other's character and all that happening here. One commentary, one commentator I read this week says, he says, Ruth could have married for love or money, but chose to marry for family loyalty. Isn't that amazing? She, she said, I need to marry, I need to be taken care of, but the family is priority here. That's imp- that is so important. And we see that what happens here is that Boaz conf- uh, comforts Ruth by assuring that her, I will fulfill my obligation as a kinsman redeemer. I'll do it. And not only because he was a man of honor would he do it, but because her reputation. He says, because you are a woman of worth, a worthy woman of no- or a woman of noble character. You know where this language else is found in the Bible about a noble woman, a worthy woman? Where else do you think it's found? Proverbs, exactly. This is the exact same language used to describe a woman of uh, noble character in Proverbs. Proverbs 31.10 says this, a wife of noble character, who can find she is worth far more than rubies? Because this language, what it's talking about is strength and ability, efficiency, might, wealth, and power. This is no pushover, but it's also a woman who knows her place and knows where to be forceful and where to be humble. This is Ruth, and Boaz is like, I'm, I, you're mine. <laughs> I'm taking you. I'm in. It's great language here. So, we, so, so things, are, start, things are starting to look great. The, I think these two are starting to go, things are looking here, but there's a big problem, okay? There's one major obstacle. Look at verse 12. And now, this is Boaz speaking, and now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one, before one could recognize another. And she said, let it not be known that... that the woman came to the threshing floor, and he said, bring the garment that you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. Now, although Boaz, yes, he is a family or kinsman redeemer, he's aware that there is someone even closer. He's aware that there is even more closely, someone closely related. And according to the Mosaic law, it's the duty of the kinsman redeemer fell on the man that was closest in relation, okay? Unless that person waived his right to the priority. And as a man of noble character, there's no way Boaz would go, let me find out if he even knows. He's like, no, we're going to find out. I'm going to talk to this guy. We're going to figure out, does he want you or not? So Ruth, so he tells Ruth to stay the night and, and in the morning, um, stay the night, not because he wants to talk to her more, not going to be romantic, but because walking home in the middle of the night would have been a terrible thing. So to protect her, stay there, and in the morning, he'll uh, give this other man a chance to redeem Naomi's family or to decline. And he, reassure, he assures her, though, listen, if he doesn't, I'm in. I will take care of it. 
So she stays until morning, and in order, but in order to preserve both the reputation, she gets up before the sun comes up so she can leave before anyone sees. Yet before she leaves, once again, what does he do? Loads her up with grain, loads her up so she can take it back to Naomi. So what have we learned so far? What can we learn so far from the actions of Boaz and Ruth? Number two on your notes. What we see is their willingness to walk in obedience as they seize the opportunity God has placed before them. To, they're willing to walk in obedience as they seize this opportunity. And then number three on your notes, and the one way that they do this, there's two ways that I see here. One way they walk in obedience is they don't take matters into their own hands. They don't take matters into their own hands. I mean, it would have been easy for them to say, hey, this is simple. Let's just decide. This looks good. I like you. You like me. It makes perfect sense. Let's just go ahead and get married. Kinsman, redeemer or not, you know, let's just, you know, nothing wrong with this. This is great. Why don't we, you're noble character, I'm noble character, um, let's just do it. He doesn't do that. Because remember, remember, Ruth sees the bigger picture here. She longs to provide rest and security for Naomi by going through the appropriate process that was essential in allowing that to happen. She, they had to allow that to happen. Isn't it so tempting to take matters into our own hands? I don't know about you, but that is my inclination to take matters into my own hands, especially when the means of accomplishing an opportunity that I believe God has placed in my life seems so obvious. It just seems so obvious. This is what I believe God wants me to do. Therefore, I have to do this. And we steam ahead and we just go for it. It's so easy, isn't it, to become impatient Man, all the, all the things in my life that I've done in, out of impatience are just flooding back to me all of a sudden. It's so easy to be impatient and fall into the tra- that trap of simply trusting in our, our gut instincts to lead us, right? My gut's telling me this. Now, there's nothing wrong with trusting our gut to a certain degree, okay? God gives us common sense. But if we're moving forward in obedience and seizing opportunities that God has placed before us where we're going to need to trust in him, we need to make sure that we are listening to the Spirit of God and that we are listening to the voices that we trust in our lives and not just by how we feel. And some of you know, if you're anything like me, I grew up a bit rebellious. Not that I did a whole bunch of things, but I had a rebellious attitude. And sometimes when you have that kind of rebellious attitude, even though you feel, you feel strongly about something, it's our tendency to not go and seek advice, right? I know what's right for me. It's worked in the past. And it's so easy for us to do that instead of waiting on the Lord committing it to prayer, going to other godly people that we know and trust and saying, what do you think? You know me. You know this situation. What do you think? One way I did this, it's not in my notes, but I'm being convicted. I have to confess it, is is that I remember when we were coming home, my wife's panicked, got a panic look on her face. Um, I remember when we were, we were coming home from, we came home from Germany and I don't know that the timing was the best timing that we came home. We came back. I was suffering there. I was suffering with a pretty deep depression. And I sought a little advice 
But my gut told me to do certain things. And we came back, and it all worked out. It worked out. But there, was some, there definitely was some collateral damage to us coming back when we came back that I believe could have been avoided if I would have waited and if I would have sought more counsel and trusted the Lord. All I knew is I was hurting and I wanted out. I needed, I needed a change. Now, it wasn't that horrible. Things were still good there. But I needed, so I, I reacted. God redeemed it. God still used in great ways. But I really believe there was collateral damage because I went on my gut. And that's what can happen to us when we take matters into our own hands. Just real quickly, an example from the Bible. There's a great example from the Bible of taking things into our own hands. Genesis 19 is a story of Lot and his daughters. I don't know if you know that story of Lot and his daughters. If you don't know it, shortly after God rescues Lot from the destruction of Sodom, remember, and his wife had turned into a pillar of salt for looking back and when she was told uh, not to. Um, we find that Lot is found, we find Lot living in a cave with his two daughters. And his two daughters come up with this, what seems to like the only solution, the gut solution to a problem, a dire predicament of not having any more men around in order to provide them from, for offspring and to preserve their family line. All the men had been, they were gone. What do we do? What do we, how do we preserve our family life? You know the story. What they decide to do, what they think is the only solution is to have their father impregnate them. That's got to be, that's got to be what God would want because there are no men around. So it makes perfect sense that God would allow this to happen. So they get him drunk. They do one that night and one the next night and they have sex with him. And lo and behold, they both become pregnant and each bear a son. And here's the interesting thing about this. One name is Moab. And who eventually becomes the father of who? the Moabites. The other is named Ben-Ami, who becomes the father of the Ammonites. So here's the problem. Here's the problem with what the Lot's daughters did. Not only did they commit incest by taking things in their own hand, their offspring that they produced ultimately produced the Moabites and the Amorites, the people that became bitter enemies of Israel. Bitter enemies of Israel, people with whom that worshiped other gods, whom God said, I forbid you to marry into their people. Now, that's a pretty extreme one, I know. Now, Matt, taking matters into our own hands may never produce an entire rebellious, godless people group. I know that, probably. That might not happen. But number four on your notes, the consequences of not allowing God to take the lead and seizing the opportunities he has placed in our lives and taking matters into our own hands can be extremely distressing. And I actually had in there disastrous too. Distressing, I would put that in there, and disastrous to ourselves and to others distressing and disastrous to ourselves and the others. I think about the things, the times I've hauled off and said, I need to tell this person this truth and how I've hurt them. And I didn't say it loving. And I, then I wear the guilt and the shame afterwards. You all think of times when we did that, done that, right? When we've hauled off, especially with our spouse, we've hauled off and said something or done something and we feel, I have to do it this way. 
and we reap, the, we reap the consequences of it. Or just other sin that we just, I, I shouldn't do that, but I'm going to do it because there's no other alternative here, I don't think. I just don't feel like there is. See how this plays out? See how this is so practical. Another way we see, number five on your notes, their willingness to walk in obedience is in their willingness to live with uncertainty. They were willing to live with uncertainty. They had no idea how this would play out. As much as they likely longed to be together and would love for it to work out to them to be together, they were both willing to live with the uncertainty that things could possibly turn out quite differently than they hoped. Ever have that happen in your life before? Mm, man, this might not turn out like I like. This could, this, could not, this could be different than I really want. Okay, I better do something. Ah, so easy to do this. I got to tell you, I don't know about you, I hate uncertainty. I can't stand uncertainty. Ambiguity drives me nuts. As I've shared with many of you, I have an anxiety disorder that I deal with. There's nothing worse, worse than a person that deals with anxiety than uncertainty. Nothing works. I go through it every week in preparing a sermon. Is it going to work? Is all those negative messages, what if, what if, what if, what if? I have to battle that. I have to work through that. I have to invite God into that kind of thing. It's hard for me. Yet one, here's one thing, number six. One thing that I've learned to do, here's what God has taught me. When faced with uncertainty is to ask myself, what is it about this uncertainty that is making me so uncomfortable? And what truth do I need to believe about God that I'm not? This is so key. We believe lies constantly. What's making me so uncomfortable? Okay, this is what it is. So then, and this is, I learned a lot of this when working on my degree for counseling. I learned a lot of this too about helping people just learn to think differently. In the recovery community, I think I've told you before, it's called stinking thinking. Help them with their stinking thinking. We got to do that. We, we need help with our stinking thinking. What then is, okay, I know what's wrong with me. I know what the problem is. Oh, bummer. Go on with life. No, okay, here's the problem. Then what's the truth? What's the truth that I need to tell myself? I need to write it up and put it on the mirror, blaze it, tattoo it, whatever. That it is in my life so that I know. Is it that I'm worried about what people may think about me? Am I worried about how people see me? Am I worried about more than that than they are than how God sees me? Nelson texted me, texted me a great text the other day when I was talking to him about my fear of what people thought. Gave me a great verse talking about the fear of man and how the Bible talks about the fear of how we, have, we, get, we get so caught up in the fear of man and not the fear of God. We need to remind ourselves of this, these kind of things. Thank you, Nelson. Am I worried that God may be holding something back good from me? Is there something good that he might be holding something back? As we saw last week, do I believe that he truly loves me and will ultimately provide everything I need? Everything I need. Do I really believe that verse that we looked at even last week? And we know that Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the go good for those who are called according to his purpose. Some of you need to write that verse down. Some of you need to put that somewhere where you see it constantly. 
When you're ready to act, when you're ready to take, I'm, take things into your own matters, into your own hands. When you're tired of living with uncertainty, we need to tell ourselves the truth. It's vital that we tell ourselves the truth because our sin nature is going to want us to lie to ourselves every minute of every day. And we're foolish to think that we don't have to take up, the, take up arms and fight against that. Romans 8, 28, I love it. Do I really believe that God is for me? Do, I, do, you, do we believe that God is for me? Well, in our last section, what we see here is how Naomi believes that she and Ruth are to live with uncertainty. Here's, how he, here's what she thinks. Look at verses 16 to 18. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, she replied, wait, my daughter, until you have, until, until, wait, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So we got Naomi waiting back at home, pacing. What is going on? What? I hope this is turning out okay. What is happening? The plan, it was pretty straightforward. She, I think she got it. It shouldn't be no problem. And when Ruth comes through the door, I mean, you could imagine, well, well, how did it go? How did it go? In the original language, actually, you learn, if you read some of it, it said, who are you? Basically saying, you engaged? <laughs> did it work? Did this thing work? So she wants to know. So Ruth tells her all that Boaz had done for her, along with telling her that Boaz didn't want her to return home empty-handed to Naomi. You see how God is at work in Naomi's life here? See how he's working? God is showing her that as she no longer, remember back in chapter one, she is no longer, as she earlier expressed, empty. Remember, she said, I went away full, now I'm empty. She's no longer empty, okay? She's, she's no longer has nothing. Remember, I have nothing. She no longer has nothing. Remember, she said, God is against me. I think that mindset is probably turning around for her, don't you think? Maybe, ah, whoa, 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 wait a second. See, she sees what's going on in his sovereignty and in his providence in his life, and because she has seized this opportunity that God has placed in her life, her life is now no longer empty. You see what's happening? God's providence, God's sovereignty, and she sees an opportunity and she says, I'm going in. I'm going for it. There's ri this is risky, but I am going to go for it. And her response, I love her response to Ruth's report. She, she, she shows that she's uh, willing to live with uncertainty, uncertainty due to her faith, really, in this loving kindness and devotion that's shown by Boaz. She goes, listen, I, I, we, we know who he is. He's proved himself. Don't worry about it. What does she say? She basically says, okay, sit tight. Just sit tight. We don't, we don't have to worry. Trust that Boaz will take care of things. He's a man of noble character. He will take care of things. This is such a great lesson for us as we learn to trust God when seizing opportunities he's placed in our lives. Last one on your notes, number seven. Because God has shown his loving kindness and devotion to us, 
time and time again, we can completely trust that he will take care of things. He will, because he's shown it over. And that's one of the things that God is helping me with. When I start to fear, when I start to worry, I think back, how, what has his track record been? How has he been faithful? How has he been loving? How has he been kind? How has he shown himself to me? I got to remember that. As followers of Christ, we get such amnesia when it comes to how good God is, Right? Because we get caught up in our immediate circumstances, in our immediate needs, in our immediate pain. And we forget that, as they say in the Pentecostal churches, God is good all the time. He's good all the time. But it's easy to forget that. Again, we're reminded that what Paul says, he says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ. See, we can know, we can know that he is going to provide the wisdom, the courage, the strength, and the resources that we need to move forward. He's going to do that. I, my God supplies every need of yours. That's not just, am I going to eat today? That's the need for wisdom. That's the need for strength. That's the need for courage. To move forward and saying, okay, this is where God seems to, oh, he's putting this on my heart. I got to go. And everybody around me is saying, that looks right. I spend time with the Lord. I learn reading the word. I mean, I, it seems right. But man, whew, that's going to take courage. That's going to take strength that I've never had before. That's going to take denying myself in ways that I've never been able to do before. That's going to take trusting like I've never trusted before. Trusting God means seizing opportunities that he places in our lives that will require us to trust in him. And we never know, my friends, we never, ever know how tremendous of a gift that that opportunity will be to us. We never know how incredible that will be to other people. We never know how incredible it will be to God's kingdom. We just never know. And next, next, next week, I'm, we're going to see next, in the next session of here, we're going to see how Boaz and Ruth and their relationship, how it has an impact on all of mankind. Now, your decisions might not feel like they have an impact on all of mankind, but you don't know what eternal impact every single opportunity that comes our way will have on you and the people around you. A couple questions. Why do you think we at times miss out on seizing opportunities God places in our lives? Why do we miss out? Why do you think we miss them? Because I know I miss them. What are some things that get in the way of seizing those opportunities that God places in our lives? Yeah, Joe. Yes, and being afraid of those. Yeah, living, yeah. I'm glad you point. That's such a great point, uh, Joe. Uncertainty breeds fear, doesn't it? It really does. And fear is huge. And fear paralyzes. It paralyzes individuals. It paralyzes churches. It paralyzes organizations. It paralyzes countries. Yeah. What else? Yeah. We don't recognize the opportunities. We just don't even see them. 
Why, why do you think we don't see, how, what are some reasons why we don't see them, you think? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've got my plans. That doesn't fit. Yeah, so good. Yeah. What else? What's that? Yeah, that's a really good. It, she said it could hurt our loved ones. Why? A lot of times, they, I just that's it's it's going to hurt them. It's going to or it's going to cause too much waves. It's going to cause you know the conflict avoidance, everything to avoid conflict. Yes, so true. Yeah. What else? What's that? Yeah, big time. Stepping out of our comfort zone. We hate that. We don't like that. That's why we need each other so badly, to help each other to step out of our comfort zones. I need you to push me. You need me to push you. So that last question, second question. What are some truths? And this is just, I want you just to grab bag, whatever. What are some truths from Scripture or about God that can help us live with uncertainty that comes when seizing opportunity God's places in our lives? What are some truths from Scripture? You don't have to, don't have to recite verses, you know, anything like that. Just what are some truths about Scripture, truths about God that can really that help us when we're in the midst of that uncertainty of pursuing, of going for it, of seizing the opportunities God's given us? I can do, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Good. What else? I will never leave you or forsake you. Great. Yeah, the Romans 8.28, which, which we just looked at, exactly. Remember? That's, that's where scripture memory comes in. It's huge. Something I'm terrible at, and I have to constantly work hard. Yeah. Mercies are new every morning. Mercy. Yes, mercies are new every morning. Great is his faith, is his faithfulness. Yes, so good. Let's keep going now. We're teaching each other here. Come on, come on. We're encouraging each other, teaching each other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Abraham was told, go somewhere. You don't know where you're going. It's going to be foreign, but go. And what did he do? Small impact. Yeah, birth the nation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What else? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of things that Jesus did that they had no idea what he was doing, but then later went, ah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That is so, I've, that's one that I've had to do with my anxiety issues. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean down here. Yes, Robin. Do not be anxious for anything, mm. but in everything, prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, yeah. and the peace of Christ will reign in your heart. Yes, so good. Yes, yes. Come on, keep going. I don't care what time it is. Come on, keep going. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. Good. Be strong and courageous. Yes. Yes. Be still and know that I am God. 
Be still and know that I am God. Yep. Say, I'm sorry, say it again, Michelle. Bob. Yeah, could you imagine how he, a little uncertainty there to Jeremiah. Hey, Jeremiah, you're going to be my prophet. Don't worry, I got your, I'll give you the words. Yeah, big. A couple more. Truths to cling to, my friends. Truths to cling to. Because if you're like me, I wake up in the morning, the alarm goes off, and I wake up and go, lie, 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 lie. I don't believe them necessarily, but they come at me. They come at me. And I don't know if any of you are like that. Maybe it's probably just me. <laughs> but it, it's, it's so true. And so what that means is wake up in the morning ready to go, Here's the truth, here's the truth, here's the truth, here's the truth. Because God is going to put opportunities in my life that are going to be life-changing for me, for others, and for his kingdom. I don't want to miss them. I don't want to miss them. So I have to trust him. Father God, thank you. Thank you that we can trust you. We don't have to take matters into our own hands as, we're, as we try to be obedient to what you have called us to do and the opportunities that you've caused us, you ask us to seize in your name. Thank you for these truths that all have just been spoken just now. Help us, God, as your people, as your children that are in so much need to combat these lies with the truth of who you are, God, and who we are in Christ. May we help us as a church to live on mission in community so that we can help each other fulfill the commission of making being disciples and making disciples. God, we need each other so desperately. Opportunities are coming continually. Help us to seize them and to trust you to do it. In Christ's name, amen.